Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's program, we meet some of the leaders of the Australian space industry, including Ben Green, the Group Chief Executive Officer of Electro Optics Systems in Canberra. Ben is a strong advocate of Australia having a sovereign space situational awareness capability and uh, that need has been highlighted by the Cosmos 1408 anti-satellite test. Also, we continue our Planet Earth series with news about new Earth-observing satellites. Let's build a stairway to the stars And climb that stairway to the stars The moon will guide us as we go Australia has many talented people leading us up that stairway to heaven. Let them introduce themselves. Good morning, everyone. My name is Thomas Pister, and uh, I'm here for Airbus. So Airbus is a of course, well-known company. You probably all experienced some of our products with, with the aircraft, but besides that, we are having also uh, other activities. Uh, of course, we are designing also helicopters that are quite famous in, uh, in Australia, and the, the, our, our last pillar is defense and space. And within defense and space, we are a big uh, manufacturer. And uh, actually, we are using our two main industrial components, one being what are called space systems, that is uh, working in France, UK, um, Germany, and Spain as well, which is focusing on Earth observation satellites, SBAS, on space situational awareness, on science mission, and of course, also in telecommunication. Uh, the other component of the group that is doing space is uh, called SSTL, and Surrey Technology in the UK that is uh, complementing the, our portfolio and also serving Australia. Uh, we heard about the uh, CSIRO and the Novasar system mm -hmm. that, is, uh, that is designed by, uh, by uh, this, uh, this Airbus uh, company. So uh, in Australia, we are present with a subsidiary that is a significant size with 1,500 uh, people in Australia mainly working over uh, the Airbus helicopter uh, programs that we had in the past, like the Tiger and the MRH-90, some of you may, uh, may know this. Uh, we also present with uh, MRTT, that is a A330 refueling air tanker uh, aircraft, and also, of course, with space, uh, where we are supporting uh, Australia with Earth observation data for more than 25 years in different activities uh, in, in the country. And we are also delivering now uh, SAR imagery with, uh, with uh, CSIRO. And, of course, uh, having uh, one of our main anchor stations that is now in, um, close to Adelaide and close to Mosson Lakes that is uh, helping us to, uh, to derive our business around the X-band services in Australia and, uh, and in the region. And last but not least, you may have uh, heard about this. Uh, last year, in, uh, in, uh, in end November, sorry, we opened our Windham facility, that is a HAPS uh, facility, our Zephyr, that is a high-altitude pseudo-satellite. So can talk about it here. It, it's still not exactly a satellite, but still flying a stratospheric level and delivering uh, uh, space-like services uh, thanks to the persistence that we are having. We can fly more than uh, 25 days and, uh, and soon uh, close to 100 days delivering persistence in both Earth observation and telecom. So our commitment to Australia is uh, quite wide and especially in space where we, are, uh, we were the first uh, international company signing a strategic intent uh, agreement with the uh, Australian Space Agency. Uh, we are also one of the founding members of uh, hopefully funded uh, SmartSat CRC. Uh, we are a, a big partner and we really want to engage into the development of technologies in Australia. 
Uh, we are also, of course, uh, committed to uh, supporting STEM with uh, some uh, students back in, I mean, that are coming in Europe and, uh, and working on space with, uh, with us. Then a brief uh, few, months, a few words about telecom. We are, of course, working on the satellite and the space segment, but also as a service with uh, our X-Band, the Skynet 5, programs that we are doing for, on behalf of uh, UK MOD, but also delivering some capacity to uh, Australian and UK allies. One of the, of the, of the big uh, prime in the, in, in the world for space, first European uh, company uh, in space, more than 50 years experience, more than 100 of geostationary satellites delivered today, and the first uh, Earth observation exporter, but this is for the later panel. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Smart. I'm from the University of Queensland, and in particular, uh, the Centre for Hypersonics, uh, which is in uh, the School of Mechanical and Mining Engineering. And I, I think what I'd like to, us to talk about today is, is how we um, transition world-leading research at universities into uh, industry. Um, I'm actually involved in a Actually, I'm the founder of a, a startup company called Hypersonics, where we're, do, we're taking uh, world-leading scramjet technology, hypersonic technology, and applying it to space launch and to develop a new way of going to space by flying to space. My name is Michael Bakakis. I'm uh, an assistant principal at Strathmore Secondary College, which is the campus in which um, the Victorian Space Science Education sits in. Uh, I'm also the director of that centre. It's one of six specialist STEM centres in Victoria and makes up uh, what the Victorian government has um, established over the last 10 years as Vic STEM, which is the six centres plus the nine uh, technical schools and also the three um, maths, uh, sorry, STEM um, secondary colleges that they've developed. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Glenn Tindall. Uh, I'm from SES. Uh, that's not the State Emergency Service. That's, um, uh, it's an acronym meaning European Satellite Company. So, so we're headquartered in Luxembourg. Uh, as of today, we're sort of the largest uh, commercial satellite operator. Uh, we, we kicked off in about 1985 with uh, television broadcasting. And so today we've got about 55 geo satellites and about 20 uh, MEO uh, satellites. Um, about 10 years ago, we went through an interesting transition where... Um, uh, we moved from most of our capacity being in a geo orbit to actually the majority is now in a, in a MEO orbit. Um, those, those 55 uh, geo satellites have probably got about two gigabits apiece inside them, so they're, they're probably 100 gigabits there. We've got more than that already in the MEO belt. Uh, the current constellation we've got in the, the Boeing factory at the moment, launching in 2021, will be a terabit system. Uh, so you can sort of see the, the scale. You know, it took us practically 30 years to get to 100 gigabits, but we're about to go into a terabit uh, within a couple of years. So that sort of had a fairly dramatic change on our business. Um, in terms of sectors we service, and we're, we're a global company, but we, uh, television broadcasting is still probably you know, more than two-thirds of our business. Um, in the data segment, we deal with sort of all of the, the usual verticals, enterprise and so forth, but government's probably about a third of that, of that business, and I'm focused on the government area. And a few of the terms that uh, he used there were geo, G-E-O. That means geostationary Earth orbit. That's an orbit at uh, 38,000 kilometres above the Earth in which a satellite goes around the Earth in 24 hours, which is the time that the Earth rotates in. So it appears to hover over one point over the equator. M-E-O, MEO means medium Earth orbit. That's the orbits between about 2,000 kilometres altitude to up to 35,000 kilometres. And uh, kilo means thousand, uh, mega means million, and giga means billion. Well, Jason Held is one of Australia's space industry leaders. As the founder of Sabre Astronautics, he was on the space show three times in 2017. Well, Jason is back in the news again. His company has signed a deal with the United States company Axiom Space to create an Australian presence on the International Space Station. Now, hitherto, Australia has ignored the space station. 
Sabre Astronautics will develop the first formal program to enable Australians to access the microgravity facilities on the space station. This will allow Australian industry to develop a new generation of space-developed products for human health, materials, electronics and clean technology. Axiom has been selected to add a series of the company's privately developed modules to the International Space Station. Now, the first of these would be added in late 2024. Later, a cluster of Axiom modules would detach and become a free-flying private space station. Now, this is not all pie in the sky. The first Axiom private astronauts to the International Space Station will fly in February of next year using a SpaceX Crew Dragon spaceship. Well, Sabre will hold a series of workshops in each state for the Australian companies to make them aware of the opportunities available to them. And uh, this could involve flying their employees in space. One of the first people to detect the debris from the November 15 destruction of Cosmos 1408 in a Russian anti-satellite test were the staff of Leo Labs Australia. Director Terry Van Haren said, and I quote, This is the most irresponsible action we have seen in space for some years, end quote. Leo Labs used ground-based radars to plot the emerging debris field. At first, they saw 30 unique objects, spanning a distance of 40 kilometres. A few days later, 100 objects were spread over a 500-kilometre window. Well, soon after the anti-satellite test, the United States State Department claimed that there were over 1,500 pieces of trackable orbital debris from the Santa satellite test. Well, as of this morning, none, I repeat, none of these pieces has been entered into the publicly accessible catalogue of space objects maintained by the United States Space Force. Yesterday, our time, or Monday evening in the United States, NASA received a debris notification for the International Space Station. In a statement, NASA said that due to the lack of opportunity to properly assess the risk it could pose to the astronauts, teams have decided to delay the spacewalk planned for today, Melbourne time. Now this morning, NASA announced that they had determined the orbit of the debris does not pose a risk to the spacewalk and that it will take place tomorrow beginning at 9.30pm Melbourne time. NASA astronauts Thomas Marshburn and Kyla Barron will replace a faulty antenna system on the space station's truss structure. The NASA statements have not specified the debris involved in this situation uh, or in this collision alert. However, we here at the Space Show assume it is from Cosmos 1408. The dangers posed to a spacewalking astronaut by orbital debris was exaggerated in the movie Gravity. Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield comments. My name is Chris Hadfield, a colonel in the Air Force, astronaut, flew in space three times, commanded the International Space Station, did two different spacewalks, used to be a test pilot engineer, downhill ski racer, occasional guitar player, and we're here today to look at some scenes from different space movies. Uh, this is gravity, and this is the scene where uh, the Space Shuttle Explorer is orbiting the Earth and they're doing repairs on the Hubble telescope and they go through some sort of asteroid debris field. Okay, well that's a nice concept, and the visuals are great, but what happens is so far from reality that that I, I just, I want to turn my head. First off, the satellite goes whizzing by at about, I don't know, maybe 120 miles an hour. The satellites are, are going five miles a second, 17 and a half thousand miles an hour. How that thing where you, oh, you could identify the satellite going by. And then, 
Houston. I've lost visual, Dr. Stone. And it's so execrable from an actual practical demonstration of what uh, what the reality of spaceflight is like. George Clooney is driving around like some sort of space cowboy as the only person who really knows what's going on. And what is he even doing out there, driving around in his jetpack? I mean, we don't go outside recreationally. It's so different than the actual people that are exploring space. That, that devote their lives to being astronauts that are actually on the space station right now. Real astronauts recognize the seriousness of their job, the fact that it's always life or death, and that we're there as the representatives of seven and a half billion people. That's Chris Sandfield. So don't expect Thomas Mashburn uh, to go jetting about like an excited teenager. Instead, it will be a slow, hand-over-hand progress around the exterior of the station, whilst safely clipped with tethers. Well, we have more about space industry in Australia coming up shortly. But first, uh, just a little mention of the space show. The space show has a home on the internet. It is at space.southernfm.com.au. And there you can find more than 1,800 features for your listening enjoyment and uh, some photographs and also that talk uh, or those talks by Jason Held that we mentioned earlier. Look up 2017 for those. Now, once again, we invite you to visit space.southernfm.com.au or you could uh, visit the Space Association's website, which is at space.asn.au. So the Space Association website is at space.asn.au. And later in the space show, we will have our planet Earth. I think this will be episode 28. And tonight we're going to be looking at Al Gore's favourite satellite, and we will also look at, let's have a look. Oh, yes, NASA's got a new plan called INCAS for investigating convection in our atmosphere. That's coming up on the Space Show. On FM, online and on TuneIn 24-7. This is 88.3 Southern FM. Well, you're listening to the Space Show with Andrew Rennie. Uh, we're going to hear from Ben Green, the Group Chief Executive Officer of Electro-Optic Systems Petriatry Limited in Canberra. And it's going to be a few terms that he uses that I'll need to explain. First, SSA. It means Space Situational Awareness. In other words, knowing where things are in space, where they're going, and making predictions about where they're going to be so that you know whether or not they're going to crash into your satellite or make a close pass by it, and how long they're going to stay in space. LEO, I explained before, low Earth orbit means orbits below 2,000 kilometres. And um, then uh, there's also, uh, he used the term ATM. <laughs> and yes, it does mean banking, automatic teller machines. He's going to talk about that. GPS means the Global Positioning System. It's a series of satellites that help us work out where we are. You may have a GPS receiver perhaps in your car. And electro EOS is Electro-Optics Systems. And a CRC is a government-funded cooperative research centre. So here we are, going down to Jeff Shedd. I recorded this in 2019 of February, and so there are a few things which have changed since Ben gave this talk, but uh, he's talking about sovereign space situational awareness capabilities. I'm Ben Green. I'm founder and chief executive officer of EOS, and I'm going to talk to you briefly today about sovereign space situation awareness. And I'm going to discuss it in terms of these four headings, I guess five minutes for each. Um, our heritage, what our reliance on space is and why we bother, what our current capabilities are and the future. So for SSA, I think most people in this room know, but SSA is just an intelligence operation 
Nothing happens without information. In this, this information informs all activities in space, whether you know it or not, whether you operate a, a very small satellite in LEO or a $4 billion asset in GEO, SSA is fundamental to your operation. Um, there are, I don't have time to go into this in detail, and I'm assuming a lot of uh, knowledge in the room, but there are essentially these four categories of data application in SSA, and the key thing about the context of Australia is without a reference or a framework of knowledge about the space environment, you can't do anything. You need a catalogue, and the catalogue becomes then a total framework that specific individual specialised sensors can inject information into. When I talk about our heritage, very few people in this room know. Um, I didn't know until this morning that our space heritage goes back 65,000 years. Um, in SSA, we go back nearly 50 years, and we have been a world leader in SSA for about that long. So the Commonwealth activities started about 50 years ago, and, and I want to talk about some of the highlights of our space activity, and in, in this case, for the first time publicly in this room, um, a lot of this information, some of this information has not been disclosable until this year. So these are the programs that I'm personally familiar with. I was Chief Technology Officer on all of these programs. So in 1973, a US Air Force lab was transferred to Australian ownership and control. Uh, it was the, uh, what, is, what is now located MIT Lincoln Lab under Air Force Research Lab control, was moved to Australia in 1973. And that program underpinned all the activities that happened in Australia for the next 40 years, uh, 30 years, because there's been a lot of independent activity since. Um, for example, in 1974, again, I don't think anybody, I'd be surprised if anyone in this room knows this, um, the Australian group was the only non-US group that participated in the development from the very beginning of GPS with the Naval Research Lab team in the US. In 1977, we were the exclusive uh, development agency for the US WINSAT program. Um, in 86, uh, we started to deploy globally under an alliance framework, and so on. Uh, one thing that really comes out of this, though, is due to this long heritage in space, Australia is one of the very few countries that can acquire and sustain a space catalogue in its own right. In other words, Australia is in a position, it, it already is very well placed to be a major space power, because Intelligence information is the beginning of all space operations and all space capability. What you don't know, you can't act on. So why is it important to us? Well, we're a large, sparsely populated and advanced technology country. We depend on space for all these things and, believe it or not, we are the most economically dependent nation on Earth on space applications and space capabilities. It's really a function of not many people, big country, uh, how do we manage it? And I won't go into the detail. There are a lot of people in this room who are geniuses at figuring out how to apply other people's satellites to make life more efficient in Australia. So Commonwealth policy is, I think, the briefest policy in the world on space. We have a one-line space policy as a country. That's it. Achieve ongoing cost-effective access to the space capabilities on which we rely. So there's a national recognition that as a country, we're economically and for national security totally dependent on space. Um, the, what's, what's not, I guess, communicated in any element of space policy, and I hope as the, space, as the Australian Space Agency deploys and, and gathers momentum, that there will be more, more meat put on the bones of, of what our space policy is. So our space dependency goes through every aspect of our lives. Many people don't know that ATMs, for example, depend on space. How does that work? Well, ATMs connected by fibre optics, that's fine. But the encryption algorithms and the anti-fraud algorithms all rely on a synchronisation of transactions, and that synchronisation is coordinated through GPS timing. And by the way, a lot of those GPS algorithms and timing were developed in Australia in the 70s. But I guess the importance of SSA arises through that dependence because both space debris and bad actors, and we've heard other speakers talk about bad actors earlier today, 
present a devastating societal threat to Australia. Um, we don't have really good numbers, but I've seen two or three economic studies that say if we lost all access to space, the commercial impact would be the same as uh, the GF GFC in 2008 was to Europe. Because space impacts our productivity and efficiency in so many industries and in so many ways. But Australia is one of the very few nations that can control its own destiny in space. Because of that heritage and because of the deep technology we have in this country. I need to talk briefly about EOS. So EOS was founded in 1983 from a privatisation of Commonwealth space activity. Uh, in the period between 1983 and 1985, it met the national security interests of this country to devolve certain activities and put them in a company. Um, that company's EOS, I was the founder, I was the Chief Technology Officer of the Commonwealth Program from 73 till 86. Um, those functions basically ran under Commonwealth auspices, so we were a company guaranteed by, by sovereign government unlimited resources for 10 years. Uh, from 1996, we became fully independent. And in 2002, we listed on the Australian Stock Exchange and, and we are exactly what we appear to be today. But we have an interesting history, which I can't go into too much about, but I am allowed to disclose that today. So a few things about EOS. We've got a lot of things we're proud of, but we're the only non-US company in the world to develop a US Department of Defence acquisition category one program. That means at least a billion dollars in contract value from zero, from concept to, in fact, $1 billion paid through LRIP. The deployment phase was $8 billion. We're Australia's, today Australia's largest Indigenous defence exporter and we have significant SSA capabilities, um, all of which are available to the Commonwealth, but the Commonwealth is not necessarily our only um, user of SSA capability. We have in no particular order, um, people will probably know that the hardest thing to develop in any application, advanced technology application is software. So we have a million lines of mature operational mission system software that has a 20-year legacy of being fully operational. So we're in, we're in a very advanced iteration on real standard software at the million line of code level. So that's approximately at the level of the top nations in space in their mission system software. We're probably more mature than some. We have Leo to Geo single sensor, fully calibrated, alliance interoperable and operational sensors. I'll talk a little bit about that more in a minute. And the system is fully developed to be compatible with space-based SSA where we have some capabilities and next generation Leo radar. That means the next generation way beyond and no one, no one in the US or here would pretend C-band is state-of-the-art, but way beyond what's been deployed anywhere in the world today. Um, picture here of, of our research facility. This is the largest and most capable optical SSA capability in private ownership in the world. Not another company in the world has anything even close to this, and most governments don't. I think there are two governments that have something com comparable to this in the world, but this is, this is under private ownership. Um, for the sake of complete correctness, the small telescope in the middle with the Oculus looking at us has been transferred to Commonwealth ownership because it's used only for civil programs in science research. So that's owned by the Commonwealth now. This facility is part of our research and development program in SSA. Uh, EOS has spent excluding any contributions by customers or the Commonwealth a quarter of a billion dollars in SSA research. Um, we, I hope we're, we're, we've done it efficiently, but on, on financial terms alone, uh, I think we rank in the top five countries in the world in SSA expenditure. Uh, the sorts of things we've done, and this is not part of that, this is part of our commercial operation. We have part of our company that supports important allies uh, with SSA capability in equipment, and we've deployed over half a billion dollars worth of SSA equipment for other countries, mostly uh, as part of US facilities. EOS is 
heavily focus into optical SSA, and I want to explain why. Um, and I'm going through this fairly quickly, but in all the key aspects of SSA, um, as a general expression, if, if you had to have one utility vehicle to meet all your requirements, it would be optical. Um, optical SSA has better range, better dynamic range, better accuracy, better sensitivity, and so on, than any other technique. So in, in, no, in no domain of SSA can it be matched. It's a very important thing to say. In no domain can it be matched. At any range, for, for accuracy, for sensitivity, it can't be matched. I'm not saying it necessarily has to be our, SSA, our optical SSA, because there are very, very uh, capable efforts, both um, in this country and, and outside this country, that are attacking this particular issue as well. This is one way to look at that. If you look at the top blue bar, this is the, this is the log scale horizontally in range, from 60 kilometres in altitude out to 60,000. And the electro-optical sensors developed by EOS with, uh, I guess recently with $200 million of our own investment, but um, much more than that prior to that as background IP from our allies. Um, we've developed sensors that are and I should, I should break a moment. The sensors were originally developed as calibration systems for the radars, for the SSN radars. So they were originally radar calibration systems. Uh, and then we figured out we could in increase the link budget for the, for the calibration network by a factor of a million in a year. And that million times upscaling moved the SSA capability from calibration of the SSN to not an SSN replacement and not a radar replacement. I'll, uh, I'm going to get to this in a second. This is not about not doing radar. This is about understanding what a framework is in which you can plug specialised assets where you can leverage them properly. So we have always calibrated the radars. It, this technology I'm talking about in optical SSA for the last 50 years has been the calibration on all the SSA data used in the Western world. The electro-optic systems can range out way past geo, and there are many cases where you need to do that. The radar range is typically limited, depending upon the capability, to two or 3,000 kilometres. And as I said, this is a log scale. If I did this on a linear scale, the radar would be very tiny over on the left-hand side. It's important to note where GNSS and geo are. And if you look at what SSA radar can reach, it's 25% of all space assets by value can be reached by radar whereas EO can reach 100%. That is, optical, optical techniques can range from low LEO with fully calibrated reference orbits in the frame all the way out to beyond GEO. In real time, fully, fully, fully compatible with all the command and control structures that we would want to use commercially or are currently used by anyone that we would want to work with. And those have been tested. The, the test and evaluation phase for this program has been 10 years uh, for qualification. So what's called the radar capability gap is actually 75% of all assets in space by value. And bear in mind that Australia is the world leader in EO SSA. So this is a picture of uh, an EOS site in West Australia. Um, uh, you can see, I think, four, four domes. There are four optical sensors. Uh, some are active, some are passive. These are active, passive, multispectral capabilities that can track objects in space day or night. So the current capability is about 12,000 high-fidelity tracks a week. Uh, so if you use the current public catalogue of... of um, the US public catalogue, that's enough to support about 6,000 to 8,000 object catalogue by itself. Um, but it's scaling to 120,000 tracks a week, which will be a very formidable capability. Um, and bear in mind, every single one of those tracks uh, is at an accuracy which is equal to the calibration accuracy of the SSN for the last 20 years. So not one track needs to be calibrated. So today EOS is the largest corporate provider of, of calibrated optical SSA in the world. And more importantly, we can acquire and sustain a space catalogue in our own right for all orbits. It doesn't matter where a satellite is. 
coming back to the value equation, remember that um, geosatellites are typically between one and three billion dollars each. Uh, uh, low LEO satellites, a highly enhanced CubeSat, is probably going to be about, at best, half a million, let's say a million. A thousand of those is only a billion. It takes 3,000 LEO satellites before you have the asset value in one geo that you have to protect. Um, briefly on indigenous space-based SSA, um, it's not widely known. EOS has built space-qualified subsystems for optical packages and active ranging packages for space for our good friends. Um, we also have relationships with non-US partners in space-based SSA. Uh, EOS has delivered space-based laser trackers and ranges. We've also um, designed, built and deployed our own satellites. I'm not talking about um, CubeSats or Nanosats. I'm talking about um, serious satellites. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Wrong term. Serious, serious weight satellites in the 100 kilogram plus class. Um, right down to depleted uranium cores. So there is a capability in, in space-based SSA as well, but if I go back to that chart about the sensitivity range and capability, um, what's really important is to have a catalogue and a framework that is dependable, reliable, robust and sovereign. When you have that, you can plug in the best radar in the world and then the optical sensors can back off a bit from, let's say, the LEO band that you intensify with radar data and because the, the optical sensors can work at any range and they can move their, their focus of attention to MEOs, GEOs or other activities or even drop out of tracking and move into characterisation, which is a really important part of, of space surveillance. Um, some of you won't know that uh, the proper optical observations can indicate the look angle of a satellite. The last time it changed orientation, um, even when it turns on a motor, we have techniques today where we can hear motors at 1,000 kilometres turning solar panels in space. So the SSA capability in Australia is really advanced. Um, and as I said, I can disclose today the reason why that is. It's been embedded in a framework of technology development, but 100% Indigenous. We've been here active for nearly 50 years, but all of this activity is Australian. There is the research, development, the deployments, the manufacturing, production, it's all done in Australia. So I want to come to the future, and for us the future is about the people. And what EOS has done in, in recent times is we detached 10% of our research budget, that $200 million, and we gave $20 million to, in partnership with the Commonwealth. So between the Commonwealth contributed $20 million, EOS contributed 20 uh, other partners contributed 20 and we established a $60 million CRC for the, principally for the development of a space cadre of skilled space professionals in Australia. Um, uh, we, I think we've, David would know whether we've exceeded these numbers, but we're doing very well in terms of the number of postgraduates we're going to graduate uh, in the next two years and also the postdoc fellows we've been supporting for five years now through Australia. We've really contributed, I think, significantly to that STEM um, base for the space industry, which I hope will come. And this, these people will go everywhere. Um, I, we hope some of them will come to EOS, but um, they, that many of them, of course, go to other places around the world. Uh, I want to acknowledge, by the way, the other partners in the CRC, um, and particularly our education partners, who have done such a terrific job in establishing the basis for training uh, this next generation of space scientists. Um, last, last but not least, I just want to... This is... We also need to capture uh, the imagination of people today. Uh, and one of the... Uh, the key experiment in the CRC is uh, an application of what we call scalable SSA. So optical SSA is scalable from defensive... from intelligence operations to defensive counter-space operations right through to offensive counter-space operations. In other words, SSA is the sensor and the shooter at the same time. Um, and a civilian application of this is debris manoeuvre by laser radiation and the Space Environment Research Centre will be undertaking the first demonstrations of this in the later part of this year 
using um, uh, a significant investment infrastructure that EOS has deployed for other purposes. But this particular experiment is going to be uh, in the public domain. Thank you. Speaking at Jeff's Shed on Clarendon Street, in uh, February of 2019, that was Ben Green, the Group Chief Executive Officer of Electro-Optic Systems Petriatry Limited in Canberra. And um, I point out that Ben was the system architect and designer for the world's major space tracking and surveillance systems. Since giving that talk, the Australian Space Agency has been uh, developing policies in many areas. Indeed, it released one just yesterday on Earth Observation. So, with the Cosmos 1408 destruction, no doubt both EOS and LEO Labs are working hard to identify the fragments. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. This is planet Earth. You're looking at planet Earth. Welcome to episode 28 of our Planet Earth series, in which we look at our home planet. When Al Gore was Vice President of the United States, he championed a spacecraft that would sit one and a half million kilometers from Earth and relay images of our home planet. After a lot of opposition, that satellite was eventually built. Uh, but then it was put into storage when the United States administration changed. Ultimately, it was revived and launched under the name of Discover. And that happened in 2015. Now, Discover, D-S-C-O-V-R, is an acronym for Deep Space Climate Observatory. This craft has been observing the Earth for more than six years from its vantage point at L1. This first Lagrange point is where there is a gravitational balance between the Earth and the Sun. It lies one and a half million kilometers from Earth in the direction of the Sun. That is one percent of the distance to the Sun. In looking at the Earth, Discover sees our fully illuminated disk. The images are stunningly beautiful in colour and are so detailed they show sun glint off smooth water surfaces such as calm ocean and lakes. Sometimes horizontally oriented ice crystals in clouds can cause sun glint. There is another amazing thing that Discover does from its distant perch. By comparing radiant energy at 443, 551 and 680 nanometer wavelengths, it can measure ocean surface photosynthetically available radiation. In other words, how much light is available at the ice-free ocean surface for photosynthetic plankton and kelp? Earth below us, drifting. Falling, floating, weightless. NASA has selected a new Earth science mission that will study the behavior of tropical storms and thunderstorms. The mission will be a collection of three small satellites flying in tight coordination. They will be called INCAS, an acronym for Investigation of Convective Updrafts and they will be launched in 2027. They aim to help develop an understanding of extreme weather and its impact on climate models. This understanding will help mitigate weather and climate effects on human communities. Because the oceans are warming, there is more energy to cause rapidly rising water vapour to form towering clouds, and these produce rain, hail and lightning. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. A NASA-funded case study reviewed in 2017 the algal bloom 
in the Utah Lake. It showed that satellite data helped lead to earlier warnings of hazardous algae uh, than other detection approaches. In this case, the earlier notice resulted in approximately $370,000 in savings. And uh, so what happened? Well, this is, this is what happened. In June of 2017, a harmful algal bloom developed in Utah Lake near the town of Provo. The European Space Agency's Copernicus Sentinel-3 satellite overflew the lake on June the 21st, a day after the United States' Landsat 8. Both satellites spotted the distinctive water coloration caused by elevated concentrations of cyanobacteria. Scientists working in a group called the Cyanobacteria Assessment Network have been developing an early warning indicator system to detect algal blooms in the United States' freshwater systems. When they saw the colour changes in the lake, they informed the Utah Department of Environmental Quality, prompting tests of the bloom for toxicity. This was earlier than observations on the ground alone would have enabled. This information allowed Utah public health and environment officials to post warnings to boaters, swimmers and fishers on June the 29th. Without the satellite data, the bloom would not have been detected and the warnings would not have been posted until July 6th. The delay would have allowed humans and other animals in the water with the harmful algae. Well, Kate Fickas is from the research faculty at Utah State University, and uh, she and her colleagues explain how Landsat 8 is helping warn of algae in lakes and rivers. Um, it's really an amazing little critter, and it's, it's been around for over... 3 billion years. In 2016, Utah Lake exploded and cyanobacteria blooms. The problem is that many cyanobacteria produce toxins. You may have heard it called blue-green algae, but it's really a kind of bacteria taking in sunlight to drive photosynthesis and giving off oxygen. It actually requires quite a bit of lab testing to know whether or not it's a harmful algal bloom. And what we're really worried about is people and pets ingesting that cyanobacteria. Dr. Kate Fickus is a harmful algal bloom scientist at Utah State University. She helps the Utah Department of Environmental Quality track conditions in lakes and reservoirs. So Utah is the second driest state of the nation. Most of our major lakes are actually man-made reservoirs. Um, they're heavily used for recreation. They're heavily used for agriculture. Um, and they're really important to the state as a resource. In 2017, harmful algal blooms returned to Utah Lake. This time, officials used satellite data to identify troubled locations. But how can instruments up in space tell us about microscopic organisms in a lake down on Earth? By measuring their blue-green color. Landsat collects light in visible and infrared wavelengths. Cyanobacteria reflect more green light than plain water does, allowing Landsat to identify algal blooms. From satellite, what we see is uh, basically uh, that primary pigment, which is chlorophyll A, but the color by itself could be misleading. A nice picture is not necessarily providing a set of quantitative uh, data. Algal blooms can look beautiful from space, but the numbers behind the images are the important part. Each measurement is, is highly accurate and it's very, it's very much corresponding to the number of photons that are leaving the body of water, which could be related to the biomass and the amount of phytoplankton. Dr. Nima Palavan is working with NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey to make sure Landsat users have consistent, accurate, and ready-to-use data about lakes and rivers. Water is difficult to study from space because only a fraction of the sunlight is reflected back to the satellite. But engineering improvements on Landsat 8 have leveled up its ability to measure the small signals from water bodies. After Landsat collects the data, it gets beamed down to the USGS Eros Center, where it is archived. The raw numbers pass through checkpoints to align the geography, correct for sun strength, and then compensate for the effects of the atmosphere. So you essentially removing those uh, atmospheric scattering and absorption Let's break down what NEMA means here. 
To measure the amount of cyanobacteria, you need to know how much light reflected off the surface. But some of that light gets scattered by molecules in the atmosphere on the way to the satellite, lessening the signal received. And sometimes light that never made it to the surface gets scattered into the satellite, adding a false signal. Like removing the haze from a photograph. Atmospheric corrections leave you with a quantitative measurement of exactly how much light left the water, known as aquatic reflectance. You want to look at the actual uh, physical measurements to derive physically meaningful products from satellite data. And that's the goal, to transform the raw materials into finished products so that end users don't have to build it themselves. By providing aquatic reflectance products, you're uh, reducing, majorly reducing the burden on uh, satellite users. Although it is still provisional, NEMA's aquatic reflectance data product is available for download from the USGS. Scientists like Kate Fickus convert the data product to maps showing the amount of chlorophyll A, helping local officials pinpoint where to test for toxins and warn residents. I use Landsat and other remote sensing technology to help local health departments understand where there's a bloom, the magnitude of the bloom, and the size of the bloom. The spatial detail is another benefit of using Landsat data. Each pixel is only a 30 meter square, the size of a baseball diamond. Yet it collects data across a broad area. In other words, there is a lot of data at a fairly high resolution. With Landsat, we can get into some of the marinas that are popular fishing and swimming spots in order to inform local health departments about making public health decisions. For the 2017 outbreak, that's exactly what happened. Satellite data gave an early warning to local officials in Utah. The extra week of warning saved hundreds of thousands of dollars in healthcare costs. Monitoring algal blooms from aquatic reflectance data is just one example of benefits from Landsat's data products. Wildfires, snow cover, vegetation health, temperature, and more are available for every spot on Earth. Landsat's highly calibrated data products, free to download and use, are making detailed Earth observation data more accessible to users and bringing a greater benefit to society. And that feature came to us courtesy of the Goddard Spaceflight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Well, that was Landsat 8. Well, Landsat 9 was launched on September the 27th. After testing the spacecraft in orbit, the cameras were switched on on October the 31st. The first image was, guess where? Of the Kimberley coastal area of Western Australia. Yep, <laughs> took us first. It shows uh, remote coastal islands and inlets with mangroves clustered in bays on the edge of the Indian Ocean. The characteristic red soils of the region are also visible. Landsat 9 data will be available for free from the United States Geological Survey website as stated in that report. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. Well, you've been listening to The Space Show, which is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia for Southern FM. I'm Andrew Rennie.